Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I think our conversations have largely been dominated by COVID-19. Four-fifths of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 have neurological symptoms. And although estimates vary, studies have found that at least half of the people who recover from COVID continue to suffer from neurological symptoms for months after. Dr. Jim Polo today joins us to talk about some of the things we can do to make sure to shore up our mental health as we are trying to ward off COVID and what we might do for those people who are suffering as well. Hi, Dr. Polo. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too, Sheila. You know, I think there's been a lot of data flying around the last year, and I was kind of waiting for one established journal to say, oh yeah, it's the link. Here's the link. And it's not just impacting people who are much older, but uh, people who are much younger as well. And that was The Lancet. And I saw that you read that same article. What were your impressions of it? It's a landmark article. It gives us some insight early into kind of some things that we need to think about and probably continue to do more research. And let me see if I can summarize it in a way that makes our our listeners uh, able to understand it easily. On the medical side with COVID, it's been pretty well established that there might be some physical or medical type risks that predispose you to not only get infected, but to maybe have a worse course. So we've Mm -hmm. talked about the fact that if you have chronic conditions or if you have asthma, if you have any kind of respiratory chronic condition, diabetes, et cetera, then, then you're a high risk and you might have more challenges if you happen to get infected. Likewise, we also know that for those folks that do suffer severe infection, they sometimes have subsequent uh, medical conditions that seem to be related to having been infected with COVID. They continue to have uh, lung challenges. They continue to have heart challenges, even though the virus is no longer present. What we haven't looked at carefully in the past is, well, what does this look like on the behavior health side? In other words, if you're somebody that has psychiatric condition, are you more likely to get COVID or not? And the other question is, if you do get COVID subsequent afterwards to to recovering, are you more likely to have a mental health condition or not? Mm -hmm. And so what this study did is it starts to look at that. The conclusions, the, the early results are pretty striking. In, in terms of the findings, were they able to determine if it's the virus itself that causes this neurological disruption, or is it the immune response to the virus that's giving people all this trouble? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I would tell you that, that this article actually does not yet reach a conclusion. But here's, here's what the findings did show. So first of all, um, just a little bit of framework, um, they reviewed... 60,000 people, roughly, a little more than 60,000 people that got infected with COVID. And the conclusions um, at a high level demonstrated if you were an individual that did not have any kind of psychiatric illness, and this will include some of the neurological disorders prior to getting COVID, then your risk for having a disorder within the 90 days after COVID, and actually it's from day 14 through day 90, was distinctly higher Mm. than for other illnesses. So you were more likely to have a psychiatric illness than you would have, for example, gallbladder disease, a bone fracture, skin infections, or other respiratory illnesses. So, So they factored in and compared to many different ailments. So there's something about getting infected with COVID 
that gives you a higher risk for a psychiatric and or neurological disorder. Here's the other thing they found. If you had a psychiatric or neurological condition in the year prior to getting COVID, you're actually more likely to get infected with COVID, mm -hmm. twice as more likely to get infected. So is it possible that there's some kind of a vulnerability that makes you more susceptible? That, that's the key question. Now, now, here's what the study did not look at. What the study did not look at is, hey, what are the actual causes? Mm -hmm. uh, do we know how that occurs? We simply know that the numbers are statistically significant. So we're going to be looking at this very carefully. And it's not the first time we've seen, by the way, this kind of a phenomena. This is not not that much different to something that was noted in the 1918 pandemic. I'm fascinated, though, that, you know, I, I joined these long hauler groups to kind of understand some of the symptoms that my mom kept complaining about. And um, anxiety and depression stays on much longer for people who have had COVID, regardless of whether they were in the ICU. And, and right. I thought, okay, the trauma has to be you have stuff shoved down you, you have people walking around, you can't see their faces, you can't, you know, see them smile. That has to be traumatic in itself. But many of these people ne were never hospitalized to that extent. They didn't have to go in the ICU ward and they're still suffering from the lingering anxiety and depression. Right, right. Well, one of the challenges that we've always had is it's easy to draw a conclusion that the emotional response of how you think about something leads to symptoms of anxiety and, and depression. Uh, a yeah. simple way of describing that. You know, if, if I'm the kind of individual that is afraid of getting infected and then I do get infected and I'm worried about that, it kind of makes sense, quote, quote, that I would have anxiety. Maybe I would get diagnosed with it and maybe even get treated. So the real question is, is there a chemical link? Is there something that's happening from a medical perspective that it's not just my thinking and emotions, but there's something happening yeah. that's promoting that? Very hard to get at that. I mean, it would be so cool if there were enough studies that it actually helped us understand, uh, understand the true physiological source of anxiety, right? Because, yes. I mean, people who suffer from anxiety have always said that no matter how much I work on how I think and how much I work, it feels chemical or, you know, systemic somehow to my brain that this is happening without me really wanting to have it, right? And, and Sheila, what you're saying is if we could figure out what that chemical link is or what is yeah. that, what is that, you know, physiologic process, then we would have something that we could treat yeah. beyond just talking through it. I think everybody who is in this second wave and truly looking at the numbers is a little freaked out. I mean, how could you not be? I mean, we just had something here, our, our solid waste report, which is hilarious that it's a 70% increase COVID it, that's in the, in the sewer system. And I was just yep. kind of like, oh, I've been trying to avoid the news on this. And yet it's all around you all the time. Yep. And so in terms of how we actually prepare ourselves for this second wave are your tips and your thoughts about what we can do any different than how we prepared for the first wave truthfully i'd have to say that the tips aren't really dramatically different but i think what's happening is that folks are beginning to see the reality of something that maybe they haven't really wanted to recognize. You know, we've been talking for months about how the numbers will increase and yeah. you've got to practice social distancing and, and it's potentially going to get worse and so forth. And now we're at that point where it's 
starting to happen. But let me point out something kind of striking. So in the United States, 15.8 million people, that's less than 5% of our entire U.S. population. And, and here's why that's so significant. So if this is how we're struggling and feeling with only 5% of the population infected, what is it going to feel like when 20% of the population is infected? Because remember, the tiny numbers of folks that need acute and critical care, that number is also increasing, which is why we're struggling with, can our hospitals support those people? Do we have right. enough beds? Do we have yeah. enough, enough people? Here's the other thing that's important to recognize. On one hand, we, we have, first of all, a lot of folks that are somehow ambivalent or afraid to get vaccinated, which I would recommend that you do get vaccinated. Okay, we can talk about that later. But um, we have a lot of folks that are afraid to get vaccinated, but even for those folks that do get vaccinated, it's not like we're going to have an immediate turnaround. It's, it's not like magically all of a sudden everything's going to get better. Okay. So it's going to take us a while to, to really roll out the vaccination and for that to actually have an impact. We're still going to have folks that are getting sick. And much like the flu, the, the vaccination is probably going to lessen the likelihood that folks will have any significant or serious symptoms and increase the chances that they actually do fine if they get infected. Mm-hmm. But there's no guarantee that the vaccination will actually prevent the spread from continuing. So, right. you know, we have to keep all of that in a sense of reality. And I'll highlight, you know, just so, so our listeners don't get depressed. Hey, listen, we went through this in the 1918s, 1919s with the flu pandemic, mm-hmm. and we had no vaccine. Right. And we got through it. And a third of the population in the entire world got it. And, you know, a hundred years later, we still don't have herd immunity. Right. We'll be okay, but we just need to realize this is still going to be a tough period. So, Dr. Polo, for a person who comes to see you who has had COVID and who is now experiencing either acute anxiety or depression as a result of it, do you treat them in exactly the same way that you would treat a person who just shows up with generalized anxiety? Yes and no. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I don't treat them differently in the sense that I follow the same framework. But remember that for any individual that I treat for anxiety, it's always about Where's your anxiety coming from? So if somebody came into me and said, hey, my my anxiety is about fear of getting germs. That's not a good one because that's so similar to to a virus. Let's say somebody comes to me with uh, fear of being around other people. It's impacting their social life. They don't go out. They can't stand being in big groups. Then talking about how that relates to their anxiety becomes a critical component of the the treatment. Mm -hmm. Same thing for COVID. So for somebody that has had COVID, and continues to have lingering anxiety, then it becomes a focus of the treatment. Now, here's what's interesting. I've actually had and talked with several patients that had anxiety before COVID and then got infected. The majority of them who have recovered fully, their anxiety is much less. And they actually have less fear after they got infected and fully recovered. You're kidding. Do you think it's like how the immune systems can sometimes wipe out other things that are going wrong? (laughs) It it can also be the reality that people realize that their fears didn't turn out to be what they were. Because remember, if you haven't been infected with COVID and you're only reading what's in the media, you can almost begin to think, if I get infected, I'm going to die. Because that's what they're talking about. The reality is, oh my gosh, the reality is 95% of the population that gets this, they they don't have any significant problems and they get better. In fact, many of them don't even know they were ill. 
So for folks that are afraid of getting ill, but then they get it and then they fully recover and feel like they're back to themselves, oftentimes they're anxiety now. That's fantastic. That's one of the bright spots you've talked about. I've often wondered um, how people deal with the psychological impact of the lottery-like nature of this. Um, It's very much like, you know, um, what I had to go through after my daughter was diagnosed with leukemia. It just seemed so random and she was such a healthy human being. And why does this aberrant thing happen that's not even in the genetics of our family. It's just this weird thing. And I would imagine that le- that leukemia and, and this virus have some similar properties in terms of the emotional and psychological impact it makes on people. So listen to what you just said, because this is so typical of how we think as humans. You, you said, why did this happen to my daughter? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to know that, right? We live our lives trying to make sense of the world around us. So we, we need reasons for things. It, it doesn't matter whether they're good or bad. So, you know, um, when you're the individual or somebody in your family is the individual that has something that's totally unexpected, we always think, think that if we have a reason for it, now it will make sense. Now, the challenge is, Very often, when it comes to medical science, we don't have good answers for why. And here's the funny thing. Even if I could answer for you why your daughter got leukemia, it doesn't change the fact that she has leukemia and she has to get through it. It simply tells us, oh, uh, she had that one genetic thing that nobody else had or she got exposed to that one thing. That's the why. Now let's move on to do something about it. Yeah. But we get stuck on the why. Oh, and I think the why can cripple people. It, it can keep you stuck in such a, a feeling of doubt and um, disgust and that pity party that people wallow in for sometimes decades after something like this happens that I'd but, love uh, to hear how but, uh, to cope with uh, it. Yeah. So before I tell you about how to cope with it, let me tell you that asking the why question for some folks is sometimes part of the coping. And let me tell you what I mean by that. If you're asking the why and you focus on why, it allows you to not have to deal with what now. Sometimes one of the reasons why we get so focused on why did this happen is because we don't really want to deal with, okay, this is why it happened. Mm -hmm. And now you actually have to Mm -hmm. deal with it. So, so, So for some folks that happens to be part of the coping mechanism. Your question was, well, how do I help people with cope? Well, actually, I try to help people by getting past the why. Mm. I'll go back to what I said earlier. I really can't help you with why you're the one that developed lung cancer and you never smoked in your whole life and you were never living with somebody, but you still have lung cancer. It's the same type and it's unfortunately very bad. How do we now live with that moving Mm. forward? And it's not just a matter of, you know, do you get the treatment or whatever, so on and so forth, but how do you incorporate that into your daily experience so you can make the most of every day, not knowing what the outcome is necessarily going to be? Yeah, right. And I can imagine that that advice is the same for someone who might be going to die from COVID versus someone who has a a slight case of it and is still really upset about it, right? I mean, that's correct. you You have to just deal with what is in this moment. It gets back to that kind of acceptance and commitment therapy that we talk about all the time here. Right. Right. Like, how how do you live with the values that you ascribe to every day, 
with the conditions that you've been given, whether you wanted them or not, and go forward. Yeah. You know, in some ways, what this pandemic teaches us is, is two things. Life is very fragile. Sometimes you don't know it's fragile and it really is. You've, you've read in the media stories of famous people, some actors that got sick and unfortunately very bad case and declined. And to your original point, why them? We don't know. Okay. Yeah. So life is fragile. That's the first thing we've learned. You know, this little tiny simple virus can change things for everybody in a very rapid way that we would never have envisioned. And then second of all, the importance of community, the importance of sticking together, the importance of thinking beyond yourself. Yeah. You know, nobody's going to get through this pandemic on their own. The only way we're going to get through it is together. And I think that's one of the lessons that we're learning, how important it is to think about each other. So Dr. Polo, just as a way to wrap this up, I'm very curious about how you have been dealing personally with people who come in and have started to believe some of the conspiracy theories that the data scientists who are giving us COVID numbers are um, unethical and that this isn't as prevalent as people are saying and they don't want to wear a mask. What, what kind of conversations do you have with them as a person who works with the brain? <laughs> yeah, and this is a tough one. And let me tell you why. Because w when I have folks that are on that edge, one of my concerns is I first have to do what's called some reality testing. Are their thoughts kind of off because somehow they're not thinking clearly? Or do they just have beliefs that somehow have been influenced by, by factors that don't necessarily make them out of touch with reality? Okay, because anytime somebody believes in a conspiracy, I start to worry about, okay, are they paranoid? Is there some psychotic thinking going on? Are they hearing things? There's something else, okay? And, and currently during this pandemic, I'd be willing to tell you there's a lot of people that believe a lot of conspiracy type things, but it's not because they're psychotic. They've been influenced by what they've seen and read in media, which uh, has been highly politicized. Okay, yeah. that's, that's just, I'm not going to speak for either side. I'm just going to say it's been politicized. Sure. What I try to do when folks are focused on that is I try to remove that as the issue. Hey, look, you're worried that you think maybe there's a conspiracy to hide information from you or there's a conspiracy to promote information. I've even had a couple of folks that have thought there was a conspiracy to get people infected. You know, I, I, What I try to do is try to say, hey, look, let's set that aside. What's going on in your world that's relevant to you today? How are you dealing with your family? How are you dealing with your work environment? How is it affecting your activities? Because, you know, the reality is sometimes there's things happening that you would never believe are happening, but they really are. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't even believe them, but you still have to kind of focus in on what's going on today. I'll give you a case history that happened to me many years ago. This is a true story, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I was in the military at the time. I had a patient that was getting admitted to the hospital because, quote, uh, this individual was paranoid and psychotic. And the story was this person uh, said, hey, I have been an operative in North Korea, and I think the North Koreans have put a hitman out on me. And I'm trying to escape. So we admitted this individual, believe it or not, under an assumed name. And I thought the individual was psychotic. We all thought the person was psychotic. Here's what turned out to be the real case. This individual really was a North 
Korean operative and really was a, quote, spy. It just so happened they really were also psychotic. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes these things that you kind of think about on the surface couldn't possibly be real are real. It still became about, hey, look, you're not in Korea right now. You're in Washington, D.C. You're safe. You're in a major medical center that's highly protected on a military base. Let's kind of figure out what's going on right now, how we can help you, settle your anxiety, et cetera, so on and so forth. So sometimes mixing those two is, is, is very challenging. Oh, wow. It just occurred to me there was one question that I didn't get answered, and that's because of my failure to ask it. If you begin to see one of your loved ones while you're caring for them with COVID and they start to have things like... Um, Perhaps they start seeing things that aren't there or hearing things that aren't there, or I suppose even the neurological loss of smell is also something that you should be concerned about, right? Because that shows that that's part of the brain is off kilter. When should you call you a psychologist or psychiatrist versus your family doctor? Right. Well, first of all, keep in mind for anybody that is actively being treated either in a hospital um, you want to make sure that whoever is the attending uh, physician knows. And that individual is more than likely going to consult with all the different oh. specialists that they may or may not need. I would actually expect that anybody that is actively infected with COVID in such a way that they're needing significant hospital care is probably going to have some emotional overlay. And we already know there are some symptoms that come along with that. The loss of smell the loss of smell is clear, or a loss of taste is clearly a neurological mediated type symptom. Yeah. Um, it, in general, for those folks that have had it, it tends to resolve. Okay. Uh, but you know, my advice would be if there's any concern that there are symptoms that don't seem to make sense, or symptoms that are different from the classic ones that you read about, tell the attending physician right away. And yeah. don't be afraid to say, hey, look, whatever the help is, I'm, I'm willing to have that person involved, even if it's a, if it's a psychiatrist. Uh, you know, I'll share with you, in 1918, when the flu pandemic started, we, we had another disorder that there was suddenly a rise of, of diagnosis. It was called encephalitis lethargic. It's a diagnosis we still use today. And encephalitis lethargica, you know, encephalitis, inflammation of the brain, lethargica, you know, meaning slowed down. But the symptoms were fever, double vision, lethargy. Um, People felt slow. They had funny tremors, eye movements, muscle pain, but they also had some behavioral changes. Hmm. We never figured out really what the connection was, but, but the number of folks that had that, it correlated with that particular pandemic. Now, unfortunately, we didn't have the science that we have today. So, you know, where that physiological process may have been occurring is is tough to think about. But I suspect that we may find that we have a lot yet still to, to recognize about how COVID is affecting us both psychiatrically from a mental health perspective, as well as from a neurological perspective. Every single week, I walk away from our conversations just like bubbling with a thousand more questions for next week. So I really enjoy it. Thank you again so much. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask us directly, you can always email me at SheilaHamilton at BeyondWell.com or you can go to our website at BeyondWell with SheilaHamilton.com and drop your question there as well. 